Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the White Coat Club. My name is Lindsay, and I'm one of the counselors at Moon Prep. Um, today, I have two of my fellow counselors here with me, Nicole and Michaela. And today, we're going to be talking about how to build a strong college list. So first, let's start off with a basic question, which is how many schools should students be applying to? So typically, you know, if you're applying to BSMD, uh, we're usually having students apply anywhere from 20 to 25. Sometimes we get families who are wanting more of that 25 to 30, um, you know, but typically in that 20 to 25 range, um, if you're applying traditional undergrad, usually 15 to 20. Um, the Common App will allow 20 schools at one time, but there's also other applications. You have the Coalition app, and then a lot of other schools will have either their own application or a state, in-state application, you know, specifically um, such as the UCs or the SUNY app. So typically BSMD 20 to 25 is what I would say. Traditional applicant, maybe 15 to 20, depending on what you're looking for. So for recommending students for BSMD to apply to, you know, 20 to 25 schools, but we can only apply to 20 schools on the Common app, how do you recommend that students navigate that? Sure, that's a great question. So the majority of students do apply, do add 20 schools to their Common app or leave one spot open for a rolling admissions school for later if they're not if they're getting a few more rejections than they pictured in the beginning and then any more than the ones they planned for the common app they would be adding to their school specific applications or the using the apply texas the uc apps um, and all students should map that out in advance so at moon prep our students create an essay map that they have all their deadlines if they're applying to schools, early action, early decision, regular decision, um, and then also any, you know, honors applications, just anything they want to make sure they hit any benchmarks and deadlines they need to hit. And then additionally, they'll map out which applications they want to use for each school, making sure that they don't have 20, 22 schools listed for the Common App, since that will obviously not work in the future. And how many do you how many schools do you recommend the students add to the Common App? I think you kind of mentioned you leave one or two spaces, Michaela. Yeah, that's something that I if I often do with students who are maybe just a little bit more worried about their um, acceptances and want to leave some wiggle room. Sometimes we'll only add eighteen or nineteen to the list, but I definitely have students who. Um, have all 20 maxed out, all 20 spots maxed out. And one thing I want to say too, is once you get rejected from the school, you can delete it from your common app and add, you know, another school in its place. I've had kids who tried to, to do that, but once you're applied to it, you're kind of locked and loaded. Like you can add, you know, up to 20 schools and change those 20 schools all as much as you really want on the common app. But once you've applied, it's pretty much done. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, I usually have students save at least two or three, just so that way, you know, if the schools are looking at, if it works out and the schools have another option and we're already using the UC app or Applied Texas or the SUNY app, mm -hmm. or even if we're jumping into coalition, let's even split it as much as we can just to give ourselves options later on. Mm -hmm. um, I think far too often, 
I've worked with students who want to add more kind of in that ninth inning in January that have those later deadlines. And unfortunately, some schools only take the common app. So if that's your only option, you know, let's add all of those in definitely and prioritize them. But saving at least three spots, I think, is really important just for those last minute decisions. Mm -hmm. I love that you called it the ninth inning, like the January. And I think that so much changes, you know, students who are building their lists now, I'm like, put yourself in your shoes in a year from now when you're about to make that decision. So much is going to change. And a lot of times students are like, well, I don't know if I definitely want to apply. I'm not sure. You know, you never know how you're going to feel in 12 months from now or six months from now. So Leaving space now for mm -hmm. your feelings for six months from now is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important too to look ahead. And if one of the schools on your list only takes the coalition or something like that, then you know you'll be utilizing that coalition application. And then it makes sense to add five schools there since you'll all already be using that and free up a few spots on the Common App. Exactly. Now, I had one student last year who told me that he had read online that you could create two common apps using different email addresses and apply to schools that way. So then you get 40 schools rather than 20. What would you guys recommend to a student who wants to do that? How would colleges see that? I wouldn't touch it. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. You know, there's so much that goes into the application process on the back end at the university. And the FAFSA matching and your transcripts matching and all this stuff going on. And I feel like if you're addressed, you know, well, what happened? We see that you have two accounts or what, you know, what went on. Um, I think there's one of two ways they can either, you know, claim that they didn't really know and it was a mistake, you know, but I think that it's going to kind of be obvious that they didn't know what they were doing and they were just trying to like, get around um, a workaround. So I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I know you'll see on blogs and that people have done it. I'm not sure what their success really has been, but I, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, I think there's too many things that can go wrong there. And I would not have any of my students do that. If I found out they did that and I didn't know about it, I would be pretty un unhappy with them. So I, I think I just would not touch that with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> Especially because there's so many yeah. different other avenues to apply. Like you could do, exactly. you know, as we talked about all these other different platforms, the coalition, like there's so many different other ways. Why, why put your acceptances in jeopardy? Yeah. Yeah. Just plan ahead, really plan ahead. And I would say the school has their own app. Do that one. Cause then you're saving a spot on common app on coalition. So and sometimes those like school specific apps, you can sometimes get like a waiver for them too. Um, like they might've emailed to you if you like did like a virtual event, sometimes they'll, they'll give you those waivers for free for applying that can always make it worthwhile as well. Okay. So what about like the breakdown? Because of course, like, you know, whenever students are applying for schools, they're not going to just apply to, you know, all the IVs and, you know, consider that a good balanced list. So having like a balanced college list is something that at Moon Prep, we really try and stress with our students to make sure that when you're not applying to only safeties or only reaches. Mm -hmm. So Michaela, can you break down like what a target or match school is um, for us? Absolutely. So, um, and I call them match schools because I'm old school and I feel like target schools popped up in the last five years or so. So I call them matches. So 
truthfully, a match school is something that's going to just essentially match all of your really statistics. So, you, um, you know, their acceptance rate is going to be 30% and above, really more towards that 40%, 35, 40% and above. And um, especially for your major too, that's something to think about is the acceptance rate for your major, not just the general school. And it's going to be a school that really just matches your interests too. So if you have your resume that's strong in research, then it's also just kind of matches why you would want to go there. Um, not like applying to a ballerina school and you have all this research on your school, on your resume, that it just sort of makes sense with everything on your resume, as well as your numbers and your GPA is matching the average student that is applying. So pretty much it's more like matching the average student that is applying, that you should have a decent chance of getting in. But we all know that even match schools are getting more competitive than ever before. And that's why it is also important to include safety schools, which should be a sure bet of getting in. And those acceptance rate are, rates are like 60% and above that most people who apply, unless there's something crazy red flag on their transcript or something, most people should be perfectly fine getting in, even regardless of most of their, their majors. Perfect. Okay. And Nicole, can you break down what like a safety or a likely school is? Yeah. So I usually say safety or a likely school is going to be something that your test scores and your stats are usually above kind of the average student that they're accepting. Um, always also looking at in-state versus out-of-state too. Um, but if it's an in-state school for you, your stats are higher, SAT or ACT is higher than the typical student that they're accepting, then I would say that's kind of a, a safety on your list. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and looking at that acceptance rate too is so key. I've had mm -hmm. a shocking number of parents who are like, well, the average, and I'm making up this stat, but like, you know, the average accepted student to Harvard is a, a 1520 on the SAT. My students got a 1570. Harvard is a safety. Um, a surprising number of parents will kind of have that philosophy. And it's like, well, no, because it's got a 4%, 4.5%, whatever it is, acceptance rate. And so those kind of looking at that big, the whole piece, the whole puzzle, I guess we should really say is, is important. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then last is a reach school. So we got target or match safety or likely, and then also reach schools. Um, so Michaela, can you break down the reach schools and what that means? Yeah. Reach schools are typically schools that have acceptance rates below 20% across the board. I would say definitely a lot of them fall in those um, under 10 and then more in the 12, 13 percent. There's a lot of schools falling right there. Um, and so truthfully, this would be a school that their numbers, their average acceptances are really above where your numbers, your stats are sitting. Um, and a, a lot of these schools, you know, Cornell, Vanderbilt, their reaches for just about anyone really no test score, even if you have a perfect score on the ACT and a few nice things on your resume, there's not a guaranteed seat at these REACH schools for anyone. A certain test score or GPA or class ranking doesn't 
earn you a seat, basically. So they, a lot of these reaches, we talk about them as, okay, you have five reaches on your college list. We quite honestly could possibly be in a situation where we don't get into even one of them. And so we just need to always have, you know, a temperate idea going into it and just realize that they are reaches for everyone because the seats just aren't guaranteed. They can't accept everyone that applies, even if their stats match or are above their average students. I think that's important to remember. It's a reach for everyone. It's hard to get into these schools, you know, 4%, 5% acceptance rate sometimes. Um, and so even if you're an exceptional student, that does not mean that it's going to be easier. If like, a, you know, your friend who had like a lower SAT score, a lower GPA got accepted, because you don't know what their essays are. You don't know what their letters of rec said or like what their resume looked like. So it's not just, stats are important, but it's not just about stats. And just to illustrate this with an example, um, one of my students this past year applied to a few of the IVs and she was a legacy at one of the IVs. Um, her dad had gone there. Uh, she'd spent so much time growing up there. Um, she, her, she was actually born while her dad was in graduate school at that same university that he had gone to undergrad. So, I mean, kind of like almost like a double legacy. And her resume was fantastic. Her scores were above 1550. I mean, she was a perfect candidate and also a, a legacy. And even coming from out of state that was like a smaller, a, a state far, far away that would look great location-wise. She had everything kind of stacked um, for her. And she got into a higher Ivy, but not her legacy school. So clearly everything in her application was on par, you know, there was nothing that was missing from her, from her application because that school and multiple other top 20 schools also accepted her, but just not her legacy school. So even with every odd stacked for you, again, just the seat is not guaranteed for you just because you are the perfect applicant for what they say they're looking for. Legacy is like a really interesting thing too. Um, we were like writing an article about like the latest college admissions trends for 2022, 2023 and legacy preferences decreasing was one of like the trends that we're seeing. Um, you know, even just a few years ago, a lot of like the top institutions, I think it was like 50 plus percent of like the top 250 institutions were considering legacy in their process. But, you know, since the Varsity Blues scandal and like a lot of like those lawsuits against like Harvard and even like UNC and places like that, where they are giving preference to to their, you know, their legacy students, um, you know, that's kind of forcing it to go away. And especially just as now they're just getting so competitive too. but places like Cornell Amherst College, they've announced like a re complete reversal and saying that legacy students won't have any preference over non-legacy students. So, yep, <laughs> that no longer gives you the leg up that it used to give up, give you whenever you were a legacy student. Mm -hmm. Anything else you guys want to add about that? Maybe a breakdown of how many. Oh, yes. Good. Oh, yeah. Just because I've had a few students, especially this past year, that really went heavy on those reach schools. So if they, let's just say that they wanted to stop at the 20 schools on the common app, let's just use that as an example. 
that didn't happen with any of the students, but you know, it's a good stopping point is the 20. Um, in this case, I would say 12 of them were reaches. And by that, I mean, every single one of the IVs and then UMish and Vanderbilt, you know, all of the other like Emory, Rice, like the very, very, very top schools. And then just one safety there, you know, in-state um, university and just a few of the matches, but very, very, very high matches too. I would say, you know, the exactly at the 30%, 31%. And those students kind of traditionally, I feel like have struggled the most with acceptances. Not that they won't get any acceptances, they definitely get acceptances, but fewer than their friends around them that had more of a balanced list. Um, so just that's kind of just an example to start off this conversation about the balancing of it. And so how many would you recommend they put in each category then? Roughly, of course, everything can vary based on the student's list, but kind of the, the average applicant. I like to have my students really go heavy on the match or target schools. So I would like them to have, you know, seven of the match or target schools. I'm okay with them having reaches. Back in the day, I got into my reach school and I did not have the test scores to support it. So I 100% understand having a fantastic essay and wanting to apply to reaches. Um, we're definitely not saying you can only pick one or two reaches to apply to, but I think the important thing is having a balance. Um, make sure you have more than one safety, depending on your numbers, of course, and also what's on your resume. A lot of students apply with a great SAT score and only one or two things on the activities list. And so that plays a role too. So definitely have more than one safety. I'm kind of happiest with a student with very, very solid test scores if they have three safeties maybe. And then I really like them to have a solid number of match or targets. I like to push for, you know, seven maybe. And then I'm okay with some, some reaches as long as they are genuinely okay with, you know, attending their match or target schools. They should only be on that list if a, if a student would actually attend, not just because it came off of a list of rankings on U.S. News or something. They really need to pay attention to their targets and, and matches almost more so. I want them very sure that they would attend there because, again, those reaches are a reach. And so the match and targets need to be very solid. Yeah, I feel like you brought up a lot of really good points. Um, and just to kind of counter off of that, I feel like if you're a traditional student, I feel like a good rule of thumb is like 30%, 30%, 30%. And then obviously everything else can be sprinkled in. Um, we work with a lot of BSMD students, obviously. So it's really hard to think about, okay, 30% for the 20 to 25 BSMD programs, right? So a lot of kids will do 20 different BSMD programs. So when we're picking those 20, I think it's really important that I, We'll have a lot of students. Um, I always use Penn State as an example. You know, would you go there as an undergrad traditionally if you don't get into the BSMD program? So, can any of these schools kind of be like a dual factor for you? Um, and then, really doing the research. I feel like a lot of students, even traditional students, just want to do so many schools. And I don't know if you need, you know, more than 10 
match schools or, you know, target schools, because, you know, realistically, do you want to go to all of these schools and why? And then I think of one of the biggest struggles with students on their applications is the why this school essay. So really doing the research and making sure you're intentional that you would absolutely go to the schools that are on your safety and your target list. I think that's a great point too, is that when it comes to BSMD, direct medical programs, those numbers really get skewed because the number of schools total that we're applying to definitely increases. And so kind of all of the numbers I mentioned just kind of get thrown a little bit off because <laughs> a, a traditional undergrad that might be a safety or a target for you, then they might have a BSMD program that makes it become a reach because there's only five or 10 seats. And so the college list can get a little bit more complicated. And that's why we very carefully guide our students through building that college list and talking through all of those factors. And one other thing I guess to think about too, is like, I know when I was going through the application process, if you graduated with like an, I can't remember what it was called. So it was like half a lifetime ago, but like, you know, the academic like honors diploma, you got like an automatic acceptance into your state university. And so those kind of things then could mean, you know, that you're only applying to that one safety versus three safeties. Um, I know in Texas that if you're in the top 5% of your class, you get that automatic acceptance into UT Austin. And I think some other schools in the UT system, but I'm not positive about that. Um, and so then that could like change your entire list too. If like you are, you know, the top 2% and you're like, I know I'm not going to fall out. Um, and so those are kind of things that could play a role in your college list. Everyone's list is going to look different, but, you know, just take a consideration of your own personal, you know, opportunities that you have, and that can hopefully help guide you to have a balanced list. Yeah. And I had a student last year that did that had the automatic admit to UT Austin. She loved UT Austin. It was right in her backyard. Just such a great opportunity for her. And so her list was very reach heavy because her automatic admit was such a good option and matched so much of her, of what she wanted. So then, yeah, we can shoot for the moon. That's fine. So as students are starting to make their college lists, what are some things that they should pay attention to? Nicole, do you want to talk about financials and I'll dive into the rest of it maybe? Sure. Yeah, definitely. The money can be a big factor. Um, room and board added in, meal plans added in. It definitely makes a big, big difference and it can make a big difference for your family. Um, so I think that should be probably one of the top few factors when you're first determining a list is checking out what the cost of attendance is going to be for you either in-state or out-of-state um, or private, you know, either one. So a few other things that students should keep in mind, um, in addition to the financials of what, what aid they received from filling out the FAFSA, also including the merit scholarships and financial package that was included. Um, and that can come, you know, 30 days after acceptance. So even students that kind of got accepted 30 days ago um, are even now finding out their financial aid package. So sometimes it can come a little bit late, you know, um, but basically merit aid also can come with stipulations. And so that can be 
maintaining a certain GPA or participation in an honors program or something like that. So some, some of the merit aid has stipulations involved, and that's very important to consider because you never know when something could happen. You have a friend, you know, get sick or something, something derails your academics for just a semester. Something can happen. Um, your car breaks down and you're walking to work or something like that. And you just kind of have a, a wilder life for a semester and your GPA could drop. And there's always some ways to get your GPA back on track and things like that. But it is important to make sure that you can attend the school, um, even if you have to pay full price. So the, the school should be affordable even without merit aid because life can happen and the merit aid could be dropped at some point. And that's worst case scenario, of course, not that it happens all the time, but it can. And so another thing to consider is, especially for these students who are applying to schools far away, again, they picked them off of a list that matched their qualifications, is just truly imagining your life there for you know the foreseeable future, the four years. And that is something that I feel like a lot of students I talk to that never crosses their mind of just truly putting themselves in their own future shoes on campus and just imagining like, is, is there things to do off campus? Like, can I go grab a sandwich? They're not gonna live their entire lives on campus. That's just not a feasible world. They will step off campus at some point in four years. Is the location around campus safe enough for them to go grab a sandwich with friends? Or let's just say a scenario you know, in their sophomore year, they want to go watch a football game with friends and they go get some buffalo wings, you know, at Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, a couple of blocks away from campus. And it's a Friday night and, you know, your students' friends want to go to a different place, watch a movie, and your student wants to go home. It's a Friday night. It's dark. Are they safe walking back to campus, you know, in the dark on a Friday night? If they're stressed studying for the MCAT and they want to go on a jog around campus, are they safe doing that? Are they safe jogging around campus at night or even during the day, but off of campus? Just things like that. And then again, pulling it back to the financials, it's so important to look beyond just the freshman year. So much of the cost of attendance that's given to you from the admissions team is all based around the freshman year. So what this means is, yes, you're looking at the cost of dorms. Yes, 100%. That's a great thing to consider. But also consider what happens when they're an upperclassman. Do they want to move off campus? That's really important to look into. What does housing look like? Housing off campus for an upperclassman in New York City is wildly different than, you know, Indiana Bloomington. Just wildly different cost of living and what they would be paying for, how many roommates, just things like that. So really look at the full four years of housing. Are there apartments on campus? What do upperclassmen normally do if almost no one stays on campus? Then you shouldn't be looking at the campus apartments. Also, even just things like parking. Is parking in a safe area? How close is it to campus? Um, at some point, your student might be wanting to have an internship off of campus. Is parking a feasible fee to add into the cost of attendance? 
and again, is parking safe and or are they parking, you know, miles and miles and miles away, walking through the snow and the sleet and the ice just to get to an internship? All of these things um, can be even just columns in a spreadsheet, but they all mean so much when considering four years. And then especially for our pre-med students, they should also be looking at when we're talking about traditional undergrad schools, so they're working towards applying to medical school, are there opportunities on campus for them to build their resumes? Can they get involved in research even as early as freshman year? In my best friend's case, she was involved in fresh in research as soon as her freshman year of college. Um, are, are there hospitals near campus or are they driving 30 minutes to an hour away? Um, all of these things factor in. So don't just look at the freshman year and don't just look at the financials. Think about their future resume, their safety, and also their, their social life, how, what they can do off of campus. Consider all of those things for all four years. Those are the things they definitely don't think about. I have so many California kids who apply for a school in like, you know, upstate New York, but they've never like, you know, seen the snow. They've never been in the, you know, the gorgeous weather that is called winter. <laughs> That's like big things to kind of think about. That's going to be like your, your mental health too, for eight months out of the year. Cause that's how long winter seems to last. Um, and so those are like big things to like, think about and to consider. Um, I just think about like your, your, like priorities as a student, they're going to be really different from your friends. And so it's okay if like for you, it's research and for your friend, it's like, you know, being able to study abroad in Spain, mm -hmm. that's totally fine. So it's like, you know, those kind of things, you don't want to just copy your friends list or like get a list given to you from like, you know, your room prep counselor or your school counselor, or whatever, because that's just a generic one that might fit you, might not fit you. So this is one area that I think can be the most stressful for like me as a counselor, because it's, like almost like helping the student plan out like the next four to eight years of their lives. And ultimately they're the only ones who can really decide it. So a lot of, a lot of research needs to go into it for the students to sake too, to make sure that it's somewhere that they're going to, they're going to really thrive. Mikhail, I don't know if you said this one specifically, but I always say like distance to an airport also, oh. you know, a lot of times they don't think about that. And I feel like the first it's all exciting when they go away. This is great. And then all of your friends go home for, you know, that first break and Thanksgiving and maybe you're a couple hours from the airport and it's going to be a much more rigorous trek to get home versus, you know, being within an hour from where you have to get. And even, you know, adding on to that is just the general discussion of distance from home. 100%, you know, you can want to experience you know, life across on a different coast or something, but also just consider that for every single holiday, that's a flight home and also usually expensive tickets because everyone is oh, doing yeah. the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I went to school about 30 minutes from my mom's house, even though I you know, wanted to go further away. That's fine. <laughs> but at one point when I was a junior, she slipped on the ice and broke her wrist and not to like put a damper on anything, but it happened to me. And I was so thankful I could just 
I could literally drive and take her to the hospital myself, you know, and just be there. So you never know like what will happen. And sometimes just being within driving distance, even if it's eight or nine hours, um, can really, can really matter. That can, that can be really nice in a pinch. Um, so that's just something to consider. It shouldn't shape your list completely, but it's something, just a factor to consider. Parents, parents should definitely be involved too. Now that you mentioned parents, I don't think we necessarily talked about that too much. Parents are likely the ones either paying some of it, contributing, or, you know, co-signing on loans. And it's going to be like a family decision too, a lot of the time. So parents and students need to have like these tough conversations about like, you know, what makes sense financially for our family too, like what we can afford. Because like, for example, for like Ivy League, educations, they're not giving merit scholarships. They give like need-based scholarships only. And so look at those price tags, look at, as you're making the list, like how much financially really makes sense for you and your family. Cause it sucks when you get accepted. I had a student a couple of years ago who got accepted to university of Chicago, got that acceptance, you know, letter and the award letter, which was basically zero. And so he, he ended up, you know, going for a state school, which I mean, was UT awesome. He was doing just fine, but still um, the prestige of like U Chicago is really what was drawing him in, but he had to turn it down. So, I mean, you never know exactly what kind of aid you'll get, but, but that is definitely something to think about beforehand as you're, you're making your list. All right. And so what are some of your favorite sites to recommend to students for finding schools? Sure. So one of my favorites is niche.com. They have not only a great blog to check out some really interesting articles featuring some of us actually, but a lot of really good information. Um, but their college list has a lot of great ratings, has the campus size, it has students that have weighed in on, you know, what life is like on campus as well as class size. It's just a very nice platform to look for features about schools other than just a ranking system. Um, so I really like niche.com as well as Meritmore is a great place to search for. You just type in all of your information, your SAT, ACT, and your GPA, maybe a class rank, and then it gives you a really great idea of where out of state you would be sitting for merit aid. So that can really help shape your list too of, oh, this university will give me a lot of money based on my numbers. And so that could help add it to your list. You could cross-reference um, the aid that you're finding on Meritmore and maybe that list on niche.com and use both of those tools as you go. And that should give you a really nice cross-section of what schools are good options for you. Yeah, I always also say, um, I know a lot of schools will participate with Naviance or SCORE. So if your school does do that, take advantage of it. You can always start looking at schools early. Um, SCORE has a really great comparison where you'll be able to kind of see a scattergraph of other students at your school or sometimes even in your district that apply to those universities. and you'll be able to see their names or what their scores were, but it's almost, you know, where you are in comparison to students that have gotten into those schools from your area. Um, so I really like those. They're great, um, really, really user-friendly for students. So if your school participates with either one, definitely check those out early. Yeah, and one thing I'll say too is like, you know, US News and World, I feel like a lot of people will use that. 
um, because it has like the rankings that a lot of people put a lot of value in. Um, But I do want to put like a disclaimer is that rankings don't necessarily mean a better education for you because ultimately, once again, it comes down to like fit. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are quite a few schools actually that don't participate in like the ranking system with US News and World um, just because it's it's kind of like a political game for them. Like, you know, um, it, it like what factors into the ranking can be like little things like how many alumni are, are donating money, money or things like that, you know, things that don't necessarily increase like your education that you're going to have there. And so, um, you know, it does kind of come down to a game that some schools will play in order to get their ranking up higher. And so I know some schools, like one that I can think of off the top of my head is Free College um, in Oregon. They no longer participate in the like ranking systems. They just stopped sending their data. And when they did that, you know, their the number of applications really kind of took a, a, a nosedive because a lot of more people just didn't know about them because they were just basing it off their rankings. Mm-hmm. And so rankings, I guess, can be like a good starting point, but look beyond that and look into a lot of those deeper things that we've been talking about. And so as we kind of come into the summer, um, one is a good time to start visiting schools on your list. Um, how many should they visit? Where should they go to visit? And like, you know, when should they really start to visit? A lot of questions. So I recommend my students visit, really utilize their summer breaks and their fall breaks and their spring breaks to visit truly as many of the schools that they can get to. Um, I don't, they don't need to be necessarily buying plane tickets for every single school, but whichever schools are, you know, the most feasible to make it to, especially their top, their reach schools. In addition to um, attending a, a visit, um, they can also be doing a virtual tour as well but really they need to be exploring kind of where it feels like home for them. And a lot of times that does mean stepping foot on campus. It's not necessary, of course, but just, I mean, visiting to get a good feel of the campus, but definitely doing virtual visits for any school that they can't make it to in person. And then beyond that also, just driving up your demonstrated interest as well by signing up for emails from each school on their list, you know, it should be around 20 schools. And so that's not too many emails to be on. And then just every, you know, once a month, just go through the emails and open up an email, click a link inside. And then the schools that do track demonstrate interest, that will mean that will kind of help help your chances a little bit that they are seeing why they might be high on your list. They do see that you're engaging with them. So follow up after a virtual visit or a um, in-person visit by demonstrating your interest through keeping engaged with them over email too. Those are kind of things too that whenever, like if a student doesn't have the ability to travel or, you know, they can, they live in a big city maybe, and there are a lot of different schools around them. Mm-hmm. At least I'll tell them to like go to a variety of different schools, like going to Harvard, Yale, and Cornell, like a, they're all kind of, you know, obviously top notch, like the most dollars are being spent on those students there. Um, so you're going to get like this same, but different kind of vibe at both or at all three of those. Mm-hmm. But instead, it'd be like useful to go to like your local state school and like, you know, get excited about that and like see what it is to go to a 
a three, a 30,000, you know, Mm -hmm. school and see like, is that an environment that's going to be right for me? Like, am I going to thrive in like a lecture hall for like bio one-on-one if there's 300 other kids in there, or would it make more sense for me to go like a smaller school where the average class size is, you know, like a high school, 25, 30, whatever kind of kids. So those are like all things to think about too, as you go through your, your college visits is just making sure that you're going to a variety of different things and seeing what's going to be best for your environment. Cause it's hard to know when you're in high school and you don't really have that, that insight, but it is, it is like a bit of a culture shock whenever you go to college for the first time and you're a very small fish in like the big ocean, if you're going to like those big state schools. So those are just kind of things to think about. It's like, where are you going to thrive at the end of the day? If it's a small or big or what kind of setting, like rural setting or more like in a city or a town. And once again, it's hard to know before you actually get there, but at least those kind of things, as you visit, you'll get to see, you know, is private versus public. All of these kind of factors are going to go into like a variety of different things can help you with making your college list too. I would say too, you know, in the age of social media, if you can't get to the university, you know, see what they have on YouTube. I know so many students will vlog like a day in the life and Sometimes you'll be able to do a campus tour on their website, you know, and see what they post themselves. But a lot of times you'll get more of like an inside perspective if you're looking at it from a student's point of view. Um, so always check that out, you know, looking at hashtags, TikTok, all that stuff. You'll definitely find a lot of information if you're looking for it. And then another thing too, you know, definitely you don't have to worry about um, booking one, a one-way flight or a round-trip flight down to a specific area but I know so many families that will kind of take advantage of the end of June if they end school early or you know a week over the summer where they're doing a one plane ride somewhere and then renting a car and then kind of like making their way back and stopping at some universities along the way I just had a student do that over spring break and they had a really good time I mean you're going to college next year in a couple months you know, you're um, maybe leaving your family. So it's been a great time to just kind of have a little bit of a vacation, but it's about you and learning new things and really like enjoying that aspect of it, of seeing where you could end up over the next couple of years. And especially for the schools that are nearby your house, your school, um, a lot of the, a lot of universities have Saturday visits. Usually there's not too many per year. It's not like they do them every weekend, but you can also utilize those to not miss school so that you leave maybe a long weekend where you are missing school to visit a college further away and utilize those Saturday visits at the schools close to you to kind of maximize all of your options. It's also never too early. If there's some younger students watching this, you know, if you have places near you or if you're visiting family and there's universities over there, even if you have no idea if you'll end up applying in a couple of years, you know, if you're visiting grandparents or, you know, other family members in other states and there's places nearby, check them out just to get yourself on a college campus. And worst case scenario, it just uses a comparison to a school that you really like that you are interested in, you know, just to have something in the back of your head of what that feels like. I remember being in middle school and doing a camp at a university. And that was like the first time I had ever been on a university campus. And I really never thought about it. And then years later, when it came down to looking at schools that I would end up attending, I always thought back to, you know, the experience of the dining hall and being on campus and, you know, those big buildings and all of that. So definitely start early if you, if you have the ability to. Well, I think that's all we've got about how to build a strong um, traditionalist. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on this week's White Coat Club. 
Um, we'll be hosting another podcast next Sunday and we'll see you then.